This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Fatherhood isn't about you, but it starts with you, and you're good enough. Dory 1, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to Military Veteran Dad, episode 83. Guys, we are halfway through July now. Can you believe it? I cannot believe it. Although it happens every year. It's kind of like this denial that most parents go through that, oh my gosh, we're almost a month and a half away from getting back into the hustle and bustle of school starting. Now that could be even a month away for you, depending on where you are in the United States. Here in Wisconsin, schools don't start till after Labor Day. But today's episode with Andy Reyes is a topic that I've been waiting ever since I recorded it in the spring to get you this episode because we talk about an area that most men resonate with, but we don't actually identify with the similarities that we have in our life, and that is this professional sports industry. Andy Reese is an amazing guy, a 20-year U.S. Army veteran. Andy Reese just brings a huge amount of value into the conversation, and that value just opens up so many different conversations of the parallels between professional sports and being a veteran, transitioning, being active duty, how we find teams, how we build teams, how we build camaraderie. So many different layers of this conversation are going to hit home for you, especially if you like sports, because this brings so many different analogies of what professional sports go through and what veterans go through. So without further ado, let's get started with Andy Reese, and I will talk to you on the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. The preparatory for what this interview is going to go into is going to be next level in a way that we, we've had a few guests go into it, but I believe you're going to like crack a few caverns open that most people have like a centimeter wide. It's going to be at least 12 inches wide by the time we get done talking with this interview here. So Andy, go ahead and a little bit tell us about your background, what your time in the service was, what your specialty is, and a little bit about your family and what you're up to right now. I am originally from Northern California, small town, was recruited to play football at West Point. Went to West Point, played football all four years. That's when I discovered one of my passions uh, later on in my career, which is sport performance psychology. You know, and I, I was kind of in my own way, like, like a lot of people who find psychology and how do I find knowledge, skills, um, you know, that can, can make me better at what I do on the football field. That became part of who I was as a, an Army officer. And shortly after 9-11, uh, shortly after I was commissioned in um, 2001 as an Army officer, as a field artillery officer, uh, 9-11 happened, and that obviously changed uh, the way that we looked at readiness and, and preparing for combat. Deployed 2003, uh, by the time you were in the Marine Corps, Ben, and uh, over in Okinawa, and then I cut my teeth as a platoon leader. And you know, I've had a whole bunch of jobs, but I, I eventually um, went back to West Point. I taught 
psychology there in the Center for Enhanced Performance. Um, really found my love for, for teaching and for coaching and mentoring. Um, that was about the time when the Army's Resiliency Program was coming on board. Um, and um, and it, I was working with the University of Pennsylvania to develop the Army's uh, Resiliency Training Program. And then um, the, the holistic approach to fitness, which I think is relevant to, you know, how do you develop as, as a father and as a leader and as a human being. Um, and then I went into special operations. I spent five years with two special forces groups as uh, you recognize as a, as a joint terminal attack controller. I'm a, I'm a Marine Corps TAC P uh, by training. You know, I loved uh, working with Green Berets, uh, jumping out of perfectly good airplanes and helping them put warheads on foreheads in Afghanistan, uh, South America and Eastern Europe. And of course, in, in, in the Middle East, um, and they were really invested in developing uh, the tactical athlete from a holistic standpoint. So I was working not only as a, a fire support officer, but also helping to develop their human performance programs. Uh, and, and I did that as both a practitioner and, and at the programmatic level, you know, and then uh, eventually went taught at the Air Force Academy before my last uh, uh, gig right now, which is at the Maneuver Center of Excellence. You know, everything's a center of excellence, right? There's no centers of mediocrity in the military, um, at least they say. Um, here at Fort Benning, Georgia, um, personally. So, uh, so I'm a dad. I'm proud to be a dad. Um, proud father of four kids. So Larson is, uh, is my oldest son. He's 14. Jonah uh, is 12. Caleb is 10. Hannah is eight. And so we have a big, we're, we're a big military family. Um, and uh, uh, we're, we're excited to be, you know, closing uh, this chapter in our lives as an army family and moving to Texas um, to north of the Houston area. And, uh, next, you know, I figure out as part of my transition that who I am as a coach, um, and, and I love to help people and teams get better at what they do. And obviously my expertise is in uh, optimal human performance and resilience from the psychological side of things. And, uh, so I'll be working on coaching development. Um, so I'm working with the Colorado Rockies, uh, major league baseball team as a mental performance coach, which is awesome. Um, despite, you know, our season being on hold, um, getting to know the players and coaches and helping them fight through this difficult time has been a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll have a season here starting on July 4th at the major league level, cross our fingers. All dads love baseball, right? You know, and so uh, especially taking your kids to a ball game and I can't wait to do that. And then I'm also teaching at Texas A&M university where I'm, um, I'm, I'm teaching um, to, at the undergrad level and I'm helping develop the coaching academy. Um, not only in terms of their outreach with professors, with coaches in practice, uh, but I'm also doing a really cool program for a lot of the veteran dads out there who are maybe interested in coaching is called the Veterans Coaching Program, in which we can talk about more. Um, but yeah, but I'm, I'm looking forward to spending a lot more time with my family, doing the things that I'm passionate about and just following my passion and, and purpose in life. Well, that is definitely quite the story there. I loved every minute of it. And it's one that has lots of depth and it has ones with lots of trials and tribulations and learning about yourself. When you said you had four kids, I had one question. And because you, you said you love being a dad now, what was it like when you first had your first kid becoming a dad? Was it always like something that you embraced or was it something that initially scared the hell out of you? Yeah, you know, some of it was something I wanted to do. And, you know, and that, that's because I had, you know, I'm lucky I had, I have an awesome dad, Don Reese. He's probably going to be watching this. Shout out to my dad, Don, back in Oakdale, California. Um, you know, my dad didn't have a good father, you know, and so he, he's a self-made man when it comes to fatherhood and really set the mold for what I wanted to be as a dad. And, and, uh, you know, that's really difficult to do while you're in the army, let alone you spend your whole career at war and there's, they're at odds with each other. I think 2005 when I had Larson, it was, uh, yeah, I was scared for sure. Um, 
you know, but I, I was super excited about, about being a father and, you know, starting that journey that my dad uh, started with me, you know, and replicating that and then trying to take it, like almost level it up. Like I think my dad, you know, just really leveled up, up compared to his father and his father's father. And to me, to carry on that tradition of fatherhood and, and level up, you know, and, but while doing it while I was a soldier was something I was really committed to. And then my wife is, you know, just amazing too. And, you know, she was a successful architect in Houston and decided to like, you know, unless she was going to go design Circle K's and Walmarts and uh, the awesome places that the Army and the Marine Corps send us, she was like, hey, I'm going to be a mom. And so, and it's very rare that you want somebody who's committed to doing that as a working professional. I and mean, you could appreciate that. But uh, I think we, we just were all in on parenthood, you know, and, um, and figuring that out. And of course, like you suck at it. I mean, you suck at being a dad. Like you don't know what the hell you're doing. And of course, my oldest son, Larson, you know, was uh, not the easiest kid. And I hope he's watching this too. But um, it definitely got a lot easier after after Larson. I can, and it's something that people don't often acknowledge that like if fatherhood is supposed to be something that you see as beautiful as the catalog with all the baby crap that you're supposed to be buying and all of these quiet moments and everything is kumbaya. But a lot of it is chaos and a lot of it is beautiful. But embracing the chaos, understanding that every dad, there's a thousand dads, millions of dads every day that enter the first day they've ever done this day. And you just got to be kind of humble to that experience and just know that every dad before you has survived and none of the feelings that you're feeling are permanent. I think that's something else I used to get trapped up in myself that this season, this feeling of no sleep is something that'll just be permanent. Like it's never going to change that you just crave like that. Time. I just wish I could go outside and play catch with my son, but he's still six months and you don't think that's ever going to come. But we don't really embrace the reality of consistent change with, with being a dad. Like every season has its lows and its highs. And when they're five, there are seasons when they were six months old that I miss, even though when I was at six months old, I was craving for the season of five. And it's often that duality that can really kind of almost deflate us because we don't get really happy with whatever season we've got. We've always wanted something different than what we've got. But once it's gone, it's gone. You never get it back. And that's something that a lot of dads don't embrace well enough. No, you're right. It's I, I think that if I was to look at my younger self, it's I think it, and like you said, it's like enjoying it's the mindfulness approach to where it's like enjoying embracing the moment for what it's worth, good, bad or indifferent. Right. You know, and that is really a, a way of, a way of thinking deliberately in, a, in an effective ways. And I think you just don't appreciate that, you know, until you're, you're actually in it. Or like you said, when it's gone, that's the recency effect. There's a psychological term to that. Um, but like, I remember, especially the struggles, right? Cause like you just want your kid to go to sleep. And I remember like, you know, just bouncing my kid around, you know, Larson around the house. And like, he was a colicky baby. and He did not want to go to sleep. And he was so sensitive to getting him down. I just remember just getting so frustrated, you know, and like, I just, okay, why will he just go to sleep and stay, stay asleep? sleep and then you know but then I remember I look back and I remember finally getting into sleep and sleeping on my chest and my son fitting on my chest while I'm you know easing into the couch you know trying to like not wake him up and then then falling asleep with him on my chest in the couch I mean I, I just have I cherish those those moments you know and uh, I couldn't wait till like his neck was stable enough um, I was training for a marathon right and uh, and I and I my favorite moments were my son loved to go. I run all over Fort Solo, Oklahoma, on the back forty there, and uh, I put him in his jogger. Man, we put so many damn miles on that jogger, my son and I. And I just would love, and I would, you know, and you're you're out in the middle of the country, you know, and you get in those, those you're kind of coasting along if you've been on a jogger. And I remember kind of put him in 
ghost mode and I got the leash on and I could walk it to where I could watch his face, you know, and see how much he enjoyed it. And he would do this thing where he would like rock forward. Like he's trying to increase the momentum of, of me jogging with him. And I just, I just appreciate those moments now. You know, I know I appreciated them then, but I think that my, uh, my ability, ability to savor those moments um, definitely increased as you, you had more kids. Because you get the chance to do a repeat. You get to do a do-over, right? Yeah. Like even my third kid, uh, my youngest daughter, like I have been different because when I, I had my first, I was trying to go to school at the same time. I was going at night and I wasn't as present as I wish I was. And so every time is just an iteration to do better. And it's it's not maybe the perfect analogy, but I've been using this quite often that my, my kids love building stuff with Legos and it'll often break. And growing up with Legos in my own, I was I kind of embraced this philosophy that an opportunity when Legos break is just an opportunity to rebuild it better. So every time you mess up, that just gives you a better opportunity the next time, either with the next kid or maybe the next day, just to rebuild it better and get stronger with it. That, that's well, right. And, and actually that, you know, for your listeners out there, that's actually called the growth mindset, you know. And you've probably <laughs> heard true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Carol Dweck at Stanford University came up with it. And, and it's like, hey, it's not about what happens to you. You know, and a mindset is a pattern of thinking, right? And so, you know, that's either both conscious and unconscious, right? But if you can see every opportunity that you have as an ability to be able to, to get to get better, specifically one percent better. If you've read James Clear's book uh, about atomic habits, you know, one percent is very palatable, right? You know, I yeah, think anybody can, can get one percent. Anybody to one percent, right? And it's those power of those tiny gains, knowing that you know you're gonna screw stuff up. And like you said, it's trial and error, right? And um, is that, you know, but as long as you're moved, you're trying to move the needle through every experience he had as, as a, as a father, and it's your most important mission and job that you have in life. then I think that's, that's really what, that's really what matters. And stop being so damn hard on yourself. Yeah. That's something we were talking about before the podcast started that because the military desires perfection with our maneuvering, our drill, our precision in executing our weapon, the rehearsing of it to make sure that that procedure happens in an execution level that's near flawless. We apply that to our life as a dad and there's no even close to similarity. Like it is just a, a thing that you figure out every day and you just figure out how to do a little bit better every day. And if you didn't get it today, then tomorrow is a new day. And forgiveness with your kids is always something you can ask. And it's a good example of humility and that, all of that. I want to go maybe a little bit forward or backward before we go forward. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. What brought you to the army? Like as a person, what were you looking for to fill up inside yourself? Maybe you were trying to fit some mold or maybe you follow your father's footsteps or what was that calling for? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, mainly, um, through inspiration through my sister and my brother-in-law. Um, I do have a family tradition of serving in the army specifically. My dad was in the guard. His father was in, uh, um, was in the army during World War II, um, and so you know, on my mom's side, we have some some Navy in there that I, that I'll, I'll deny, you know, at all, at all costs, especially with my me being an Army football player. Um, and so I don't recognize the Navy side of the family. I'm kidding, um, but uh, I, I um, for me, my brother-in-law was killed um, 1994 when I was a sophomore in high school. He was a Army captain. My sister was also in the Army. She was a big inspiration for me. They were both in Desert Storm at the time that I was in middle school. So I really looked up to them. I really looked up to Chris a lot when he died, um, you know, just really rocked my family's world. And um, he just was such an inspiration to me in a lot of different ways, you know, and uh, someone that I wanted to be like early on, he definitely was a hero of mine. And so I kind of, when he ironically, you know, when it's, it's funny how when bad things happen, they can create these opportunities you never foresaw. And so 
I, you know, here I am. I grew up on the West Coast. You don't know what West Point is. And West, opposite West Point's in New York. Um, and it's a, you know, there's a lot of Navy and Air Force in, in the West Coast. And I didn't know what West Point was or the military academies. I remember Chris, before he died, um, when I last saw him, it asked me if I, he had these, he's, uh, he went to UC Santa Barbara and was commissioned via uh, ROTC. But he, he'd served all these guys and went to West Point. And one particular guy played football, his name's Brother Ratliff. And other guys who went to West Point. And so when they came back to visit my sister after he died, I developed these relationships. And these guys ended up being great mentors and encouraging me to apply to go to West Point. And by the time that I started having a successful football career, they helped get me recruited, which was a perfect fit for me because I was a fullback in a, in a um, in what's called the wing T, which is a great fit for the triple option. I wasn't highly recruited. Um, and so it just was a, a great, great thing. Just really worked out. And I, I developed this affinity for leadership, obviously, and, and I love being outdoors. I mean, I grew up with the backpack on my back in the outdoors and, and being a Boy Scout and Eagle Scout. And so all those, all those worlds kind of seem to come together and make sense to go to, to West Point and go. Uh, and then I think just me being loving athletics and in, in, in the Army, I think what I found was is that the Army, after my football playing days, the Army was the ultimate team sport, you know. And I found a lot of the similarities that I love that I, that I the things that I loved about playing football were the same things that I loved about being in the army, you know? Um, and so that's, that's really kind of what this unexpected journey has turned into. And, and I never planned on making it a 20 year career, but it's just something that is, uh, has, has worked out and, um, you know, just took it one step at a time, you know, and when I was talking about my bio, um, I was, uh, when I was a sophomore at West Point, like I said, I was a fullback. I played offense. Um, they had this, they switched positions. And so here I am, I'm competing at the highest level division one, a in college football. And I've got to make this, this change to not only the other side of the ball, I had to learn a new position, then the defensive scheme. And Oh, by the way, I'm getting my ass kicked in all lives of the Academy. Right. Cause you know, you're, you're getting this Ivy league education and you get all your military requirements. You're taking two to three times more credit hours than the average person. College football is a full-time job. It literally is. It's a business. And it just was, uh, I just was struggling. I was drowning in life. And there's a center called uh, the Center for Enhanced Performance. It's, uh, it's unique. A lot of your listeners who, you know, obviously will notice that a university has a student support center. This is a unique student support center where they took the evidence-based best practices of sport and performance psychology, and they brought it to all three legs of the academy, which is uh, athletics, obviously, uh, the military and academics. And so I, I leveraged them for all three. And just because just to get out of my own head, I mean, I was I was uh, I, I lacked in confidence. Um, you know, I was overthinking things too much, um, and so I was choking a lot. I was um, you know having a hard time just managing stress and you know my attention and having a hard time um, just with a you know confidence, composure, concentration were the three things that I was really struggling with. And, and I and I ended up working with this. Um, he was an army officer. He was a captain at the time. Has master's degree. And we worked one-on-one and it just, he started providing me these very simple tools that I could put into practice. And, they, and it, over time, they became a part of who I was. And ironically, that captain later got his PhD and, and brought me back 10 years later to come teach in that department. So it, um, it just is kind of funny how it worked out. That is a, a full circle story there. Can you share a story where that, like, uh, where that resilience training really kind of like shifted your focus and what that looked like? You know, I'm one of those types of people I think like a lot of, a lot of folks who are, who are veterans, like, you know, you, um, it's the Superman effect, right? You know, where you're trying to be everything to everyone, you know, just because you have a lot of a high motor and a lot of energy 
Um, and uh, some people say it's an A-type personality. There's really no such thing. Uh, but it just really, just because you have a lot of bandwidth and energy and ability doesn't mean that, you know, you can and should try to do everything. And, and I'm a pleaser by nature. And so I think I was, um, about the time when I was going through a really grind period in my career, like no officer ever wants to be a major. Your major years are like thankless. You're doing thankless jobs, climbing the ladder, um, working long hours. And I was doing that. I was at Joint Base Lewis McCord, the artist formerly known as Fort Lewis, to uh, our old school folks out there in Washington. And I'm in this grind period. And, you know, you're, you're living in Washington State. I'm in a small house. I have four kids under the age of 10. You know, we don't know anybody. We're kind of socially isolated, living off post. And it's a, a weird kind of area. Uh, people aren't really friendly in Washington. Sorry, Washingtonians, but you generally are not uh, compared to other places we've been. I, I was I'm married to a Southern girl who's used to Southern hospitality. People are indoors a lot um, and just was in, and I'm gone. I'm like, you know, I, you know, I'm, I was just really working a lot, a lot of long hours to, to the point where my, you know, my kids, I was not seeing my kids during the week, Ben. I mean, I, I literally, there would be weeks I would go where I was not seeing my kids and I just was trying to do too much. At the time, I was, you know, in order to stay relevant in my field, I was trying to do side hustle type stuff. I was helping out with a, a, a veteran nonprofit in the Green Beret Foundation. They were trying to stand up their their resilience program called the Next Ridgeline. I was helping out with that as a volunteer. Um, you know, I'm like moonlighting with the Mariners, trying to help out with them, because trying, trying to I'm trying to eventually set myself up for success to work with uh, in, in sports psychology as a professional later on and so I just was saying yes to everything and it was that classic thing where I was you know trying to be everything to everyone uh and ended up being no one nothing to no one I remember my wife was just looking at me and I was burnt out I was starting to get out of shape I was stressed out I was stretched thin you know it wasn't my kids hadn't seen me in, in you know a long time oh by the way I'm getting my master's degree online and so it's like I'm just I'm burning the candle from both ends and and if you're out there you can you know you can relate to this I mean we do this to ourselves and sometimes we don't realize um, we don't we don't gain self awareness until one we hit rock bottom something really bad happens or or two like someone someone actually holds the mirror up to your face and says hey jackass like you know you're not freaking you're screwing this up and then my wife thank God I my, did that and our wives are always really good about reminding us uh, you know about our, our faults and where we need to get better right and it, it, all relationships are good that way if they're healthy um, and so she did that she held the mirror to my face and be like what are you doing just looking at me and I just remember you know, having this aha moment, you know, to where it's sinking in about that, how overextended I was. And then I started, and then I just kind of went back to the fundamentals of what, you know, I had been teaching and, you know, and trying to really, um, in terms of managing my energy. You talk about so many different angles there that we overwhelm. We think we can do it all. We put on the Herculean type mindset or, we use our ego to really protect ourselves from fit, from anybody else figuring out what your wife reflected back to you. And you think, and we think we're hiding it well, but really we just don't have someone coming into our life and saying like, dude, what the F is going on? Because it's not, and we think we've got it, but we don't. And that's the part that is kind of a military kind of basic dad that we try to project that we have everything figured out, that we have our emotions in order. We have a good family because when we're at work, we don't talk about family. So it's very easy for everybody to just assume like, oh, yeah, he probably goes home to a great family. And we don't have that integration. We get to hide a lot of our core self. We don't get to embrace our best self as a dad. Like being a dad helps all the other areas come out stronger. And that is something that so many dads don't embrace. And I, I can see it in your story of how you had to kind of hit rock bottom in order to come back up from that. 
And, you know, it was one of those deals where I, I've had to learn, you know, and again, it's a trial and error thing, right? You know, I have had to learn how to come up with criteria about like if, you know, in terms of what my priorities are, like yeah, there's a, Stephen Covey has a great, um, great analogy in seven habits for highly effective people where he talks about, you know, when you're setting goals about, you know, you, you look at your goal plan as the jar, right? And if the big rocks are your, the things that are the most important things in life and you got to put those things in first, right? And to me, those big rocks were my, my faith and, you know, and my family and obviously what, what pays the bills, my, my profession that I, that goes in there too. So my, my faith, my family, my friendships or fellowship is what I call it and my profession, right? Those big rocks take priority over everything else too. And then everything else, you have to identify what are what are the pebbles? What are the sand? What's the water that you can then fill up around it that should support what those priorities are? And I think part of your criteria of developing, you know, um, uh, filling up your, your your goal plan, making your goal plan and your, your jar is understanding it, you know, if it's not a hell yes, then it's a no. And, and, and not only is it a no, but how do you say no to people? You know, especially if you're like me and you're like a pleaser, you know, and you have such a, you have a demand for your attention and your energy, which are your most precious resources, by the way. A lot of people think it's, it's, it's time, you know, but there's only some, that's a finite resource, but your time and your energy are within your control, right? You know, and so getting really good about that and treating them like resources to where it's like, is it contributing to what my goal plan is and, and supporting those big rocks or is it taken away from that? Um, and I think understanding that is is super important to determining what's worthy of your your precious time and energy. And you hit another great point there because we often I was a people pleaser, still am a little bit, but I've gone definitely I've moved past it. But the idea that that there's an infinite amount of yeses, and the worst part is your brain can't keep track of all the things that you've done. And because we generally don't have good habit practices with time management of having things in our calendar, scheduling our to-do list, everything seems possible in the moment because your brain just kind of forgets it until you need to do it. And someone walks into your office at work and says, hey, can you do this real quick? And you had all these other things you're supposed to get done. But in that moment, it seems like, yeah, I can do that. I want to be a good friend to you. I don't want to screw you over. And you say yes. And what you also don't realize is probably he mismanaged his time and he's trying to get you to bail out or you think that this is going to hurt the relationship. But then the other side, when you learn to say no, you also realize that it's okay. Like he's like, yeah, that's okay. I'll try. I'll, I'll try to get it done myself or something like it's never as devastating to say no, as you tell yourself in your head. And that can be such a crux of a crap to, to get stuck into because you, you don't see a great way out of there. And Go ahead. No, I was just say, I mean, I, I think there's a couple of reasons why there's one is fear of missing out or FOMO is what we're calling it. It's fear of disappointing people um, as well too. Um, you know, I mean, let's just, let, just to kind of dissect those two things right there. I mean, and I think it's okay to just take a pause and say, Hey, that sounds great. Let me get back to you. And I, I think by you creating that headspace and timing, you know, and you can appreciate that, you know, is that you're, you're creating an opportunity for you to reevaluate about where this ask, fits into the greater scheme of my, uh, my purpose, um, you know, my priorities, um, you know, and, and the other pieces like understanding how that is, it, it relates to your, your values, right? Let's go to a moment in a particular time. So there's probably a moment where you hit rock bottom and you're, you're still very overwhelmed and I've been to rock bottom. I know what it looks like. And many dads visit it often several times before they figure out how to get out of hitting rock bottom 
where did you, what moment and where, what was like, what was your moment like where you figured out that you could actually move out of rock bottom? Cause it doesn't happen in the same moment. Just cause you hit rock bottom doesn't mean you find the door. So what was it like when you actually felt like I've got a path to a better place? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, recently, I mean, right before it was the time when I, you know, had, had an indicator, you know, or a trigger that happened in terms of that led me to a decision where were things to be in line with my priorities and what's important and then make a decision um, to, to throttle down or back off and not do something because it, it was out of alignment. That the example of that is, uh, so I just, uh, so I'm on a fellowship right, right now through special operations command over the next nine months. And so right before COVID hit, like really hit hard in early March, I just finished my, my, my time in the army. Uh, um, you know, I was shifting to, these new opportunities and I was getting ready to go to spring training in Arizona to meet up with the Rockies and, and, and meet the, a lot of the coaching staff and the players that were there. They were there at the time. They'd been there for a month. And, you know, but, but meanwhile, COVID was starting to kind of really come in, you know, really start to affect life and specifically professional sports. Like we had just, there was a couple of things that dominoes were starting to fall into place. Like uh, the NCAA tournament had just started to end. Uh, they just ended that. So they canceled the rest of the season for, men's college basketball they had um and so now we're we're wondering whether or not that was an effect spring training so my good friend of mine uh doug chadwick i called him you know and but the night before that i called him to make i was getting ready to get on the plane the day and the night before i remember um you know of course the kids are still going to school this time and my dot my youngest daughter hannah um you know the kids are starting to ask about you know they're hearing about coronavirus it's there's a lot of chatter in the infield you know obviously people dying kids are smart. They're, they're hearing about it too. And I remember, and they knew I was getting ready to get on the plane. Right. But I didn't have to because the travel ban hadn't gone to effect yet. I remember putting my, my daughter to bed. Right. You know, and it, and I remember like I do every night and we're getting ready to say prayers. So let's say she's crying, you know, and I'm like, Hannah, what's wrong? And she's like, daddy, I don't want you to, you know, get on the plane. I don't want you to go and get coronavirus and die. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm just kind of like, you know, honestly, it felt like a deployment. It felt like I, that old familiar feeling that of you're getting ready to go on a jet plane and, and you don't, if you, you don't know if you're going to come back, you know, but yet I'm not going to a combat zone. The army wasn't sending me. This is a totally volunteer moment. For me. I, I don't have to go. You know, this is a, this is a nice to have, not a need to have, you know, and I remember going in after I put the kids to bed and I, I sat down and bed next to my wife and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? You know, I'm like, this is asinine. I'm like, there's no, I need to call Doug, you know, Doug is a great friend and, and I need to call Doug tomorrow and tell him I'm not coming. And, you know, as, as fate would turn out, I, I talked to him and he's like, Hey, look, man, you know, I think we're making the right call. Spring training isn't canceled yet, but I don't want you to get stuck out here. I've been out here for a month. I don't know if I'm going to get home. Let's just call it off. And sure as shit that night they canceled spring training and now here we are, you know? And so it just reassured me that sometimes you got to listen to your, your gut you know, and what your kids are telling you as a dad, you have to listen to what your kids are telling you and listen to what your heart and, and your mind is telling you and to inform you to make, uh, to good, good decisions that are aligned with your, your purpose and your priorities. And just because you made a decision doesn't mean you need to keep that decision. Oftentimes I feel we overcommit to our commitment and it's kind of like a hell or no hell way of like, we're going to go, there's, we're going down this road no matter what, even if it's a dead end, I need to go down this and prove that I was at least half right. And 
we can pull back at any moment we can course correct. And I use it like in my life every day is a crazy kind of chaotic because I've never been a stay-at-home dad my entire life. Every day is a new day that I've never done anything remotely close to what I've done. And like for the first three week or four weeks after I lost my job, it was chaotic, stressful. And but every day was just a new opportunity to let something go from the previous day, try something new and just keep reiterating, but not getting so caught up in the process of it's got to look a certain way. It's got to go this way and then take feedback that, or something else that I also learned through the stay at home dad process is you're not the only freaking guy that's been doing this. There's stay at home dads all over that their wives are the ones that go out into the workplace and they stay home and take care of us. Like once I found them, I was like, Oh my gosh, I got this whole network now that I don't have to crowdsource my own ideas of myself. I can help shortcut my learning. And that's something we also suck at as a dad. We don't reach out for help. We always internalize that we are the only ones having this problem. I got a question that I was thinking about as you were talking about the, the Rockies and your sports and also in the army. So most men idolize sports, football, baseball as something that's almost religious for most men. What is something that you can see that is very similar to someone playing professional sports that a military dad already has, but doesn't know he can activate it? Because I imagine there are massive similarities, but because we put sports, professional sport players on a pedestal, we don't think we have that same level of resilience, mindset, and just sheer effort to kick ass. But inside, if we really believed it's there, I believe we have a lot of similarities. So I'm wondering what you see comparing like, what we see, what we have in that professional sports player just figured out how to unlock it. Yeah, I know. I think that the number one thing that jumps out to me is uh, the competitive mindset, right? And what that means to, to compete. And uh, to me, like when I, you know, working with, you know, uh, elite tactical athletes, working with elite sports athletes, working with leaders in business, you know, the people who are really successful at their craft or what they do um, have this competitiveness i know a lot of your viewers are probably watching the last dance and the ultimate competitor is michael jordan right you know and and you're seeing the benefits of that but there's a cost to that too but i i hear i i define competition you know as the process of continual improvement starting with yourself to make yourself the best possible uh you know um performer that you can you know in in a way that's um you know holistic mentally emotionally um physically, um, spiritually, um, you know, those, and then, and then, and then professionally, right. I think, you know, looking at those areas and trying to knowing that you're never going to fully arrived, you embrace the process of continual improvement. And, it, and through that process of you becoming the best version of yourself, you're going to, you're going to automatically influence others, right? You can only control yourself, how you think and how you act and react. We know that, but you know, how do you influence people beyond yourself is by working, becoming the best version of yourself, in those areas. And then you will eventually influence others that are, especially the ones that are closest to you, you know, it becomes a byproduct of that too. It, it will come out of you naturally. Right. And I think that, you know, um, you know, really good military leaders, athletes, um, you know, really good, uh, really good athletes. They, they compete you know, at everything, you know, so they compete at their craft uh, as a baseball player, their craft as a coach their craft as a, a military officer or an enlisted member, you know, an NCO. And, you know, but they, but sometimes people forget about taking that competitive mindset, that pattern of thinking and applying that to being a dad. Like I'm going to compete my ass off to be the best dad that I can today, knowing that I'm, I may fail, I may screw it up, but if I'm getting 1% better at being a dad, even though I failed, you know, I've learned something that made me better. 
that's going to move the needle. Right. Um, you know, and, and, you know, over, over time, you know, you're going to be a way, way better dad, you know, over a number of years than you were than when you started. Right. But the competition piece is huge. And I think the next piece is the, the tribe you hit on it earlier, right. You know, the best athletes know that they can't do it themselves, right? It takes a team. It takes a village. It takes um, a family, you know, that it's not just a nuclear family. You know, it takes, you know, there, there are other people who've done this long before you have. There's a lot of other experts that are out there, you know, and so who are you surrounding yourself with that is, is, is helping you to become that best version of, uh, of yourself as a father, right? Um, so I would say those two things, you know, competition, specifically competitive mindset, and then in tribe. Those two were beautiful. And I could put a cherry on the competitive one that I've really. So the part that we are living in today in 2020 is the comparative trap that everybody has a better life on Facebook and Instagram than you do now. And you desire that. And that difference in that gap internally makes you feel like shit. And that continually repeats. And that muscle getting stronger just makes you feel worse and worse. And very often we always compare our beginning to someone else's end. Like someone listening to this might think that, man, I wish I been such a great dad. He's so far up ahead of me. But don't compare my end to where you're beginning because I was at the exact same spot that you were. I just decided to start a podcast to help people come up behind me because I wanted to know that there was other dads out there that were on the same struggle that started had the same problems. And when you think of the comp- competition, the perfect way to explain the comparative, the only person you should be competing and comparing yourself is the guy that you were yesterday, not your neighbor not someone else, yourself. How do you compare to yesterday? Are you better? Did you figure out, improve on something? Like that is what you're talking about with that 1%. Compare yourself to yesterday. And that's the only person that should be comparing because everybody else has their own shit. And that's what nobody really talks about. And like, you can see the one version, but everybody has some, even people that make a million dollars. And Jim Carrey, I saw a quote from him recently that said, like, I wish everybody could just make $10 million and realize that it doesn't make everything go away. Because yeah, it, they, uh, they yeah. all have their own problems. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You, and, and, then, and I think that's what competition is not, is that the traditional way of thinking um, is that competition is you versus me. You know, and I, I think social media just enhances that lens a little bit, too. But if you choose to see competition, as like you said, is that, that you know, um, is that I better than yesterday that I beat yesterday, um, then, then, you know, that, you know, you're doing it right. Um, and I, and I think that's what you can control versus, and then the things you can't control, you let it go. Cause it's not worth your precious time and energy. No, you can only control uh, yourself. And even if there's right. like things like if, whether it be between a marriage or a relationship with your kids, no matter what happens, like if, if there's an outcome and you're like, there's no way I can fix this. It really pissed me off. Whatever happened. You really, there's only two good questions. If you want to focus on control. What did I do today that led up to this moment happening? So like try to diagnose, like, did I, did I do something earlier that kind of like set this motion? And then what could I have done to actually prevent it from happening? Like, was there something that I could control that would have prevented this moment? And you, know, you can just remove the whatever happened from the situation. And again, just focus on how can I make myself 1% better tomorrow? And there was another thing that I also hear with uh, like um, Tom Brady is a good example. Like you could think Tom Brady being a perfect football player, perfect quarterback. He's got it all together and he can do it all on his own. But what you don't realize, especially in football, and I don't know what the actual ratio to coaches is in baseball, but in football, I know it's really high. There's a coach specialty for every single thing within football. No quarterback knows how to do it himself. No one masters all the offense. No one masters all the defense. Everyone has like 15 different coaches in their life because they can't know it all. 
So they go to the people that do to enhance their own life, whether it be money, whether it be relationships, whether it be a dad, whether it be your career. There is a coach for everything. And the military mindset says that because you don't ask for help, then that all of that gets closed off. But literally, to change your life, there is someone out there that can move it forward. And whatever category you feel like you need the help, everybody's there's always someone ahead of you. You just need to find someone that's got enough advice that can help you pull you where you want to be. And we don't we suck at that, but it's one of the core fundamentals of how performance is improved in sports. Like you literally have coaches around you. And oftentimes the average of the five closest coaches is the average of your performance. That's right. You're, 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 you're absolutely correct too. And I, I think to, we don't think about that when it comes to fatherhood, you know, is that who are, who, who are the, um, who's my Mount Rushmore or my, you know, you can look up um, the idea about having a, an advisor, personal advisory board when it comes to, you know, someone on your personal advisory board is should be somebody who's maybe advising you who you really up who you really look to up to as as a father, you know, and, and talk you through that because I I would say that is arguably your most important performance in life is being a father. You know, nobody nobody dies uh, sits on their deathbed wishing that they were you know uh, they were a better uh, better soldier or marine or you know a better businessman. It's all about the people who are there with you. You know, and they and uh, and so I think you got to invest in that early and often. And you also hit on something that military dads and performance have in common in a negative way. We both prioritize the wrong thing, that we idolize our position on the field and our entire identity comes from that uniform we put on, whether it be a sports uniform or whether we put it on as a military uniform. It becomes who we are. It becomes everything we are. And we idolize who we are when we put that on. But we never really idolize who we are without it. And acknowledge the people that idolize just for being you. And that part is so important because you you need to recognize that that priority is not there. There's a reason at the bottom of my logo, I added legacy because many military dads get stuck in what did my service mean? Why did that person die and I live? What did those four years or those two years that I had to go to Iraq, what did that all that mean? Like, it's all garbage. Same thing with sports. Like whether you played with the Buffalo Bills in 1985 and won a Super Bowl, no one's going to remember that. But they're going, the kids are going to remember of how you showed up in their life for the rest of their life. And that's the stuff that's going to carry on well past. Like you may be remembered for that one kick that missed the field goal, but you're going to be remembered for all the successes after that. And your legacy of your family, that switch of making it from service to your family is something that the sports guys often suck at, which is why they always end up in a lot of cases in trouble or in the news for doing family in a wrong way or getting a divorce and getting removed from their kid's life. It's because they prioritize yeah, no, the wrong you're, you're, position. You're spot on. And I think uh, what's cool about that is to be a part of organizations that are bringing those worlds together, like athletes and veterans, because we have similarities. Um, you know, merging of veterans and players is one of them. Soldiers of sidelines is another one. And obviously, Texas A&M Coaching Academy, we're, we're working with that. But everybody goes through transitions in life, and I'm doing that right now. Um, and it's it's really difficult. So it's, it's very stressful. Um, you know, I'm definitely feeling the stress of transition right now. And I think one of the most important things that I did, I've done, is and it's, I'm still working through that, is that, you know, when you go through a transition as a veteran, and you could appreciate this, Ben, is that the first thing you think about is where am I going to go and what am I going to do? But you don't take time to think about who am I? What's my identity? What is my, you know, what's my purpose? Um, you know, what? It, uh, why do I do what I do? Um, what are my core values and beliefs? And then how does how do those things? That's the, that's like building the foundation of the house, right? Right? You know, so you know, we we rush to framing out the house, putting a roof, and 
decorating the house, but we don't have a strong foundation of, of who we are. And I think that, you know, we are not, you know, yeah, veteran is part of our tribe and that's a part of who we are, but that's not, that doesn't define who, who we are. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, when I identified myself as a coach, you know, I think that also bled over to who I wanted to be as a father. Right. You know, cause I am playing to my strengths as a father because I love to coach my kids, you know, um, and, um, you know, am I always good at it? No, but I think that's my, my strength and that's kind of my value proposition as a human being. So if I could play to that strength, both personally and professionally, then I know I can make a difference. You hit on something that I don't know if I've ever hit on before that, or I hit it on this particular way. I've, I maybe hinted at it that veterans often, there's a lot of veterans that join because they don't know who they are and they like the idea of adopting an identity that's assigned to them. And the same thing can apply to sports because a lot of people chase that scholarship, chase that professional because they feel it's the only path. Maybe they came from a really broken home and they feel like this is the only way to feel value or feel loved. Maybe you came from a loveless home and the love of the fans is something that fuels you and drives you. And both of those are defined by the uniform you put on. And I've talked to a military spouse whose husband killed himself because he the Marine Corps medically discharged him and took the uniform off against his will. And he joined essentially to, to gain that identity. And the Marines have one of the most indoctrinated de- identities. It never actually leaves you. So like, if you really only know that, and the reason why I asked about your transition when you joined is we really never acknowledge as we get out the transition of when we got in, we had goals, we had ambitions. We don't understand. We don't acknowledge the gaps of where we thought we were kind of like do a SWOT analysis of, what am I on the out? Where, what, what, who, what was I really looking for when I went in? Did I find it? Did I find what I was looking for when I went in? Maybe I need to make a pivot, kind of going back to, did that get me a result that I wanted? If it didn't, okay, maybe we need to try something different. But that first transition is one no one acknowledges. And it's when you put that uniform on, it's so important because you were someone before. Even if you didn't acknowledge it or even if you couldn't love what was there, I bet other people could easily identify what that was. And that is something that is so important. And I can also pick up the way you've described all the different things that you've got going on is the one thing that really helps in the second transition is the amount of opportunity that you have. And what can scare the hell out of you is when you feel like you're going into a desert. I think there's a lot of veterans out there that feel like they're standing in oasis where there is a nice bubbling spring of water in the middle. There's plenty of animals surrounding you to feed off of that provide all of the different things that you need to survive because when I was a Lance Corporal, I could blow every single dollar and three squares a day and a roof over my head and still have a job. And that oasis is a very nice warm fuzzy. And if you don't do any planning, you, you can feel like you're standing on the edge of an oasis walking into a desert. And what I think you did perfectly there is um, you essentially understood that your network is something that's going to create opportunity. And I have a uh, part of my friendship course that I launched at freedadcourse.com was the idea that the amount of opportunity you you have in your life is directly proportional to the amount of people you talk to daily. And that's not something people acknowledge or and veterans suck at because we don't have, we don't know how to talk to people. It's something we're scared of because they might find something, some secret inside our head. And so I commend you just for maybe you did it consciously or not consciously, but I can tell that that's something that made you a more resilient person because if you feel, if you feel like your life has options, you feel like you have choices. And I think if you feel like you have choices, you're not trapped into a corner. And if you don't have choices, you feel like you're trapped in a corner and that's when you bite. Like when an animal is backed into a corner, that's when they attack and you often will hurt them people that you're close to. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, that's actually, you know, that's the fight, flight, or freeze response. You know, it's, uh, you know, when your automatic nervous system kicks in, um, you know, it's, it's part of our DNA code. So how we respond to, to stress. Um, you know, stress isn't good or bad either, by the way. I mean, it just is. I mean, your response, you know, can be kind of too much bad stress can be bad. You know, too much good stress can be good as well, too. Um, and I think that definitely relates to me now. Um, and it's scary as hell, man. I go in and transition in itself is difficult, um, let alone to do it. You know, when you get a family feed, you got four or five people who are depending on you. Um, and then you're in a global pandemic. And you don't know economically. We don't know where this is going to go. Right. So I seems like all great that I got these opportunities, but I, I don't know where the hell it's going to go. You know, I can't control any of that, too. So I think you made a great point about like, hey, creating as many opportunities as I can that align with my passion and my purpose and what I think I want to do. And, you know, and if some of those opportunities, some of those oases are, are mirages, they dry, you know, or, you know, then then I, I can land on my feet, you know, and to at least survive, maintain our quality of life and then pivot. You know, because I think, and I'm not afraid to pivot. You know, I think that's a really important thing for everybody to understand is that, you know, is that you have to, you know, that's part of the design process is rapidly prototyping, beta testing, learning and figuring it out. And, and if you fight the plan or you're married to the plan, you know, you're, you're increasing the chances that you're going to, you're going to fail, I think. And so I'm, I'm not afraid to have to, to pivot. And, um, and I'm actually looking forward to having multiple opportunities to make that pivot. You hit on a, a one good point that I want to make sure that we can highlight because when I, if you were here listening closely to the bio, there were several people in your life that were kind of like uh, that a thing on a ping pong table where you hit it and you ricocheted into a new direction. They literally put you on a new path. That's what happens when you have conversations with friends or conversations with new people, because, and th- even if you're a dad listening to this and you're liking the conversation, but you still feel empty. Maybe you have no idea what your value proposition is to even continue and take another breath. And you're at that pit that you need someone to reach in and grab you and help pull you out. One of the best and most powerful parts of a friendship is they reflect back your best components. They will reflect back your next step that you need to take. And if you stand in a mirrorless room, you'll never see where that next step is. But so many times that one person will step in, they'll reflect something that you can't see and that reflection will completely change your life forever. And I can, you, even the coming back to West Point, like that's full circle reflection. That person was reflecting back a strength that you couldn't see and created opportunity you didn't even know existed and that now has changed your life. Yeah, and that, there's, a, there's a term for that process it's called mastery. Um, and so that's where, you know, the, the, the bill is about iron shaping iron, one man makes another. I mean, that process of mastery is really what it's about. And it's a deliberate and an intentional process. It doesn't have happen by accident, but you have to take the first step, like you said, by being a friend and seeking friendship, you know? Um, and I think that's, in, in, you know, that's creating the opportunity for mastery to really happen. Is that something, I don't know the answer to this question, so I may be curious, is that something professional athletes suffer that they kind of internalize and they don't create friends? They kind of just become an yes. idol versus someone that actually values yes. human life as a connection? Yeah, 100%. I mean, especially at the professional level, you'd be shocked that, you know, I worked with a lot with the NFL and um, I was shocked Like one of the first clients um, that I worked with um, on the consulting side with professional uh, sports of the New York Jets. And there was a guy who, you know, we were talking about getting to know your teammates and, um, you know, and there, you'd be surprised at the number of people that didn't really know their teammates. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's a shame because they have their professional life. They spend their time in their locker room. They do their craft. 
but then the the, the social and task cohesion, the, the social cohesion, the task cohesion is there, but the social cohesion is not there beyond their time in the locker room, right? You know, they they you know when you we we did a poll of a group of players uh, with the Jets and like you know it was a you know you would I won't give you the numbers, but you know it's, it's a you would laugh at the fraction of players who actually really knew more and details about their players than than probably you know than uh, what you would know about a stranger. Uh, that you've never played a uh, you know a game with, let alone an entire season for five years. Um, so it really um, shifted a paradigm in my mind about how much uh, how little these players know each other. And same thing when I spent a lot of time with the Seattle Mariners, and they they were you know were really seeking to lean into that, especially with their team captains, guys I won't name it by name, but they're that are going to be first ballot Hall of Famers who you know we're trying to figure out you know we take it for granted our leadership training in the military, but the things that you and I would you know, are, are like breathing air and drinking water were not inherent to them, you know, as far as how do you build this camaraderie in a, in a clubhouse that extends beyond the clubhouse, right? Because that's when people come together to start working towards a common purpose. And uh, so I think athletes struggle with that a lot. And it's especially when they leave their sport and they struggle mightily because athletes don't have the resources we have at veterans. I mean, there are over 500 veteran service organizations that are out there. It, there's a name for it. It's called the Sea of Goodwill. And there's not even a nearly a fraction of those for, for athletes. So when I see those tribes coming together through organizations like Emerging Veterans of Players, it really makes me happy because it's these are people who are going through uh, transitions that can lean on each other in that tribal community through and through things that we're good at as dudes. Like, hey, let's go let's go roll and do some MMA together, and let's sit down and let's let's have some discussions, you know, because we're all going through this crap together. You know, transitions aren't unique to veterans. Uh, but if, you know, if we create an opportunity to make those connections, then good things are going to happen. You just hit it right out of the park to use a baseball a terminology there as our sports conversation continues. And I had visual, I never visualized this comparison, but I want to make, I want to, because you probably might enjoy it as well, that there's often a scene in a lot of movies when they, they protect military members in war and they'll always be showing a picture of their kids to their other soldiers, Marines, whatever it may be, airmen of when they're gone, like who they're, who's they're waiting for, whether it be their wife, their family, they're always sharing common pictures and the unit cohesion that that creates of, if I see that guy in trouble, his wife isn't going to get to hug him when he gets a goal. I'm going to have his six. And if you don't have that kind of connection that like they know their kids' names kind of, I can imagine that equally translates to the amount of Super Bowl rings they have because that cohesion on the field, you like that's exactly what you're trying to do when you're doing it. And money isn't the primary motivator, whether they tell you it is or not. It's trying to achieve an objective that we can all go back home to our families without a concussion, or for example. That feeling is something that moved mountains. And I think, I don't know this perfectly, but I'm pretty sure this is part of the science and uh, why Patriots have become such a dynasty because of that cohesive family that that coach brought to it. Like, I don't know how many of them know they're each other names, but they probably do very well because they fight for each other on a level that I don't think a lot of teams do. And you're talking to the very crutch of what men need in their life. For millennia, we survived in a tribe where it was never on us to do all of the work. There was always someone else to teach us how to hunt. There was always someone older. There was always someone younger. We always had these rite of passages and we always had someone to share the load with. Like if life got too heavy, we would just get more people around us to lift up together. And without that, there's almost a certainty that life will give you more than you can handle. And I would say the more you make probably as far as money, the more that that weight feels even. 
And having a team that can feel it with you and lift it, like that is so powerful on every aspect of what it means to be a dad. Because there's kind of a, a joke in the Marine Corps. I don't know if I created it or if it's a good a, a, a running joke, but in the Marine Corps, your back is the first thing they abuse. And it's not if you want to lift something, you don't get a fork truck. That's a stupid idea. It just means you need more Marines lifting it. Like I had about a dollar for every time I had I lifted something with like 15 Marines around instead of getting a freaking fork truck. And there's a lot of life lesson in there that if you can't lift something, that just means you need more people around you to lift it. And it's a certainty that life will give you more than you're supposed, you're able to handle. And we don't honor that basic part of our core DNA that says we are a tribal species. We thrive when we are around people and we thrive when we're working together as a cohesive unit with a common goal. And it sounds like that's, I mean, you can see it now once it's kind of, we paint it in this particular way within sports that it's what's going on in the off season. Are you guys playing with each other? Are the kids hanging out? Like all of that connection happens before the first football is even thrown. Yeah. And I'll give you an example of that. I mean, you know, what's great is that, you know, um, you know, in major league baseball, you don't have a season, you know, you're, you started to get the zoom thing going just like everybody's doing everywhere, you know, and, and you know, you would think that baseball, like when, when the season ends, guys are split into the winds. I mean, they're all over central and South America. They're all over the United States. Um, you know, and so how do you stay connected? Right. And how do you stay connected in the global pandemic? And, you know, when we have these zoom calls, it's a very deliberate intentional thing that the first thing that we talk about is not about baseball. You know, it's not about the five tools and fundamentals, you know, we're talking about how are you doing? You know, how's your family doing? And we're bringing the kids in, you know, and, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, it's something that's going on with their family and that's the things that endear us to each other. Right. And so I think that has led to, um, you know, a really beautiful thing as far as getting to, for in terms of cohesion that can happen, even in an era of social distancing or physical distancing, you can still socially grow uh, as, a, as a tribe and as a team, whether it's fatherhood, baseball, you know, serving in the military, you know, even in time physical distancing, you can grow, you can grow socially. But I think it starts with, with giving a shit about another human being and, and, and then taking that step to say, how you doing? I love that kind of summary there because it sums up everything that we were talking about there. I do have one last question I want to hint towards to see if you, what, what your take is. I've heard sports people or professional sports players will use something that's called like the alter ego effect where they kind of create a virtual persona they step into. Have you, I imagine psycho, psychology wise, you've studied this. Is there something we can take away that and apply it to us as a dad? Yeah. You know, I, I think that it, it comes into just knowing who you are and, and what you're all about, you know, is, is what we talked about. I think, you know, who you are when you put the uniform on, whether you're a you know, service member or, or a ball player, you know, there, there really is the same person. And I, I used to get caught up in this too. It goes back to the identity piece. Like who, like, like okay, well, I'm, I'm Colonel Reese when I put my uniform on, you know, and I, and I got to be this professional military officer, you know, and stuff like that too. And then, that's a different guy than Andy Reese, the father and the husband. And, and I did that for a while and that's freaking all wrong. <laughs> you know, I am the same person you and I have I'm wearing, whether I'm wearing the uniform or I'm taking it off. If I know who I am, you know, cause my, my values should be the same. My, my three values that I figured out and I hope you guys, if you guys want to know what your core values go to the VIA Institute character, it's a great tool. It'll spit out your core values are, if you haven't done that, you should do that who you are as a person, specifically as a father. And I figured out my three core values are, are, you know, uh, are love, uh, you know, competition and service, everything that I do and I don't do, 
you know, and on all the hats that I wear and all the uniforms that I have worn and, you know, have to do with those three fundamental mental things. And those don't change, you know, so I don't think it's an alter ego. You know, I think I, you do, you do hear about that. You know, I think there is, there is a psychology that in terms of how you, you know, how you see yourself as a competitor perhaps. But I think that there's some core fundamental things that you have to really take some time to, to unpack and really embrace, um, you know, because those should be universal constructs across the board in, in all the roles or responsibilities you have, um, you know, as no more important than a dad. Yeah. I'd like to flip it. It's not about work life and or work life balance. Like it's not an or statement of you, this time you're employed, this time you're a dad, it's work life integration and dad life integration. As I try to build my business and try to be a stay at home dad, a husband, a father to three kids, a person trying to do COVID just like everybody else. It's how do I keep integrating more in my life so that I get more of what I desire versus having to choose to be an eight to five person and then come home and be dad. Like I'm on the, the goal of how do I get to be dad all day, every day and get to love that while at the same time pursuing yeah. happiness and pursuing my goals. That's right. He's the, he's the same guy. I mean, I, I think from a business perspective, sometimes you hear like, hey, don't take it personal. It's business. Well, that's a bullshit statement because if you're doing it right, you know, and you're going all in on, on, on your business. It's personal. It's, it's, it's emotion. It's emotional because you poured yourself into that project, to that pitch, to that sale. And don't tell anybody who's lost their job right now that, you know, business ain't personal because it affects you personally. Right. And so I think, you know, I, I, I love the integration piece too. I don't like even the, 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 the this versus that, because I think they're all, they're one and another, they're one and another the same. Right. And I love what you said there about being personal because I had my, when I lost my position, it was eliminated and they just reorged the structure and just like that, eight years of service. And it, if it wasn't for this podcast, I would have taken it more personal, but this podcast, because I had a vehicle to kind of keep growing with, it was just kind of a closure of a chapter versus kind of an enclosing of a book that I had to forcefully say goodbye to. Like to me, it was just close this chapter and focus on writing the rest of the chapter. Yeah. And that's your spot because that's exactly how I feel about my military career. You know, I'm sure the, I will, I will miss the people. That's a very common theme. And, you know, but I will not miss the army, you know, I mean, because the army as an institution will not miss me, nor is it designed to do that, you know, but like if, as long as I am sticking to who I am as a coach and continue to coach, you know, based on all the coaching that I've done in the military, I know that, um, you know, I'll still have that same satisfaction that I've had outside of the military and I'm going to screw it up. <laughs> I'm freaking, you know, you know, and, uh, but I, I'm not afraid to screw it up because that's how you grow and get better. And in my farewell email to the company, I wrote that over my eight years, because our headquarters was in Prague. So we had, I had friends literally, all, I still have friends all over the country, all over the world. And I wrote that like through my eight years, I was never creating coworkers or I was never connecting with the coworker. I was creating friends. And in my early days, I remember telling a friend over in Prague, like I have more Czech friends than I do American friends because I, it was actually, I felt easier connected to them over there. And like, it was, it's, it was always about friendships for me. Like part of the hardest part of leaving wasn't saying goodbye to a job that paid me money. It was saying goodbye to all the relationships at the time. And it wasn't a goodbye, but it was a kind of an ending to like, they're not going to be as on as they normally are, but it was the actual closure of the friendships because that was always the core Every time I show up, even as someone calls me on the phone, my philosophy is always, I always try to be the friend that I wish I had in my life five years ago. And that's always the basic foundation. Like it's never about business. It's about how can I be the best friend to you? Because five years ago, I would have loved having a friend like myself show up in your world and just kind of remind you that you are a great human being, a great dad, and to get you more excited about tomorrow. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, and that, again, it goes back to tribe and, and investing in people and process, man, like we've been talking about it. It's, uh, you know, and that doesn't have to end, you know, just because you take the uniform off, right. You know, as a matter of fact, you need it more when you take the uniform off, you need it more than ever, right? Because it happens in the military, whether you choose to happen or not, it's actually assigned to you as yeah, a, you're forced, you're forced in a cohesive unit, but on the outside, you either have it or you don't, and you have to create it and you have to work at it daily. Yeah, for sure. No, for sure. And I, and I think that what's great about where we are, and I think this, that's really the, you know, I think all challenges and opportunities in disguise. I think the great thing about if you weren't familiar with how technology can bring people together, you know, that's, I hope that's what the new normal is, is that if you weren't accustomed to or familiar with, because you were forced out of the comfort zone, you've realized what technology to do to kind of bring people together in, meaning, in meaningful ways. And, uh, yeah, I think maybe the challenge is like, hey, you know, if there's somebody you serve with that you you wonder where the hell they are and you're a Facebook friend or LinkedIn or freaking you're on Twitter, Instagram, whatever, why don't you set up a time to, to talk to them, you know, um, you know, have a virtual happy hour. That's what, been a fun, really fun thing that I've done. I think even in the weeks when the last freaking thing I want to do, I'm zoomed out is uh, is have another Zoom call, man. I just have had a blast doing the virtual happy hours. I highly recommend that if you haven't done one yet. My wife's having a few teacher friends over tonight and she was thinking or telling me like, I, I feel sorry, guilty that you don't do any of this. And I was thinking, I was like, well, I mean, I have friends here locally that I could, but honestly, I I get it scratched daily because I'm having probably three or four Zoom calls with someone a day and that feeds my curiosity. It feeds my need for connection. I do wish I could have a physical connection or have a beer with someone, but at the same time, like I take what I can, but like I haven't been in isolation because every day I'm talking to a dad or I'm interviewing or I'm just having a connection with someone or helping someone through it or even just having any conversation, joining someone else's Zoom call or virtual like that. Like just you can do it in the very simplest ways. Your brain just convinces to make it super complicated. So Andy, as we wrap up this interview, I've absolutely loved it because we went in a place that I wasn't expecting to in this interview, but we found some very good comparisons and I feel like many men understand the sports world. So I think that comparison will easily hack and untranslate the stuff that we have going on in our head today. So I have one last question. What's a parting piece of advice you want to leave for military dads? It's kind of like one of your best nuggets, something that you wish someone would have told you on day one that you could maybe gift us on other people's days, day one or day 350. Yeah. I just want to just, I want everybody to remember out there as a dad that you are good enough. Um, I want you to think about that for a second and remind yourself, you know, self-talk is in your inner narrative is, critical in terms of determining how you think, which, which then triggers how you, how you feel, how you act, your physiology and how you act and react. It creates this, you know, um, this loop that can either help you or hurt you in terms of your performance as a father. And if you can remind yourself daily, you know, uh, that you are good enough and that half of your success as a father is just showing up is being present. And then, you know, and then improve that 1% of how you stay engaged um, that's good. I, but you know, you are good enough uh, as a father by, by just being, by just showing up and, and, and the 1% better, you know, is, is your goal. Mm-hmm. I love that because that is something that I sucked at for a long time. And it's only in the last few months, even, and through coronavirus, like this is probably the, the most transformation that I've gone through. I now have a beard, I've lost 20 pounds and I've, really taken probably the biggest steps in my health that I've ever done in my entire life. So like, as long as I don't die from coronavirus, this corona, this virus will have given me the freedom to really step into my best self and my best life. And it started with this idea that I needed to love the person looking back in the mirror. And as long as I didn't love that person, 
I was always going to have that inner narrative that you were talking about, that loop that would convince me of certain things that that person needed to do because he looked weak and not strong enough to get through whatever life did. And like now my journey is to make sure the outside matches the inside. And I can tell you, I already feel confident. I feel stronger. I look in the mirror and I can see a stronger Ben Cole looking back. And that's already led to being more confident in the daily decisions or just the confidence to deal through an emotional storm with my kids. Like I get less triggered because I can feel more genuine love on the inside for myself. And there, I, I use the Calm Meditation app. And today was there was a beautiful, um, she always gives a graphic at the end. And she said that no one on this in this universe deserves more love than the love for yourself. That if there is one person that deserves it, it's for yourself. And just remember that you it's not wrong. It's not self selfish. It's selfless. And when you can fully love yourself, then you can give it freely to others. And it's not something you give under condition. It's not something it's that unconditional love that everybody talks about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think the, the last party shot would be, hey, you know, fatherhood, just like leadership and coaching, it doesn't start with you. It doesn't, it's not about you, but it, it starts with you. So fatherhood isn't about you, but it starts with you and you're good enough. Yes. Saving yourself will save others. Well, Andy, if people want to connect with you and learn more about what you're up to, where's the best place to check you out? Yeah, please. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you know, find me uh, at Andy Reese. Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll post that uh, hopefully on the show notes here. And then uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Twitter, I use the hashtags uh, Coaching Matters. Um, you can also find me um, at the, the Texas A&M Coaching Academy. Just, you can Google search that. Um, if you're a veteran out there, you're interested in getting into athletic coaching, uh, administration, or, or teaching, um, and you want to get educated and certified in that too, be on the lookout for that. We're going to be launching in the summer of 2021. We'll have online courses. We'll have resident programs there. Uh, so you did on campus or online. It's a great resource for veterans who are out there who want to get into coaching. And then, yeah, just to reach out to me, stay in touch. I like to just to be a relevant, responsive resource and no more important than to uh, veterans and, and to dads. Well, I absolutely love that. And I'll make sure all of those links are down in the show notes. I'm definitely even going to check a few of them out myself. So if you want to check those out and your curiosity is peak, go down there in the show notes and check that out. And if you, again, if you want to check out that free course that I mentioned of how to create more friendships in your life, head over to freedadcourse.com. It's five free audio lessons, 10 minutes each. They take, it's, it's super simple. You can listen to them on a simple walk and those five simple steps will help create more opportunity and that opportunity will change your life. Andy, thank you for this conversation. I appreciate you and I am positive our friendship is just beginning, but it's going to great places. Yeah, likewise, Ben. Thanks, guys. Thank you for taking the time to check out that episode because if you liked that episode as much as I did, I know that value hit home close to you as it hit home close to me. Those similarities were so impactful for me. Some of my big takeaways from this episode were recognizing the seasons of parenting that we talked about early in the beginning, that seasons of parenting that whatever feeling we feel right now is not something that's permanent. That was something that I struggled with when my kids were younger, and I'm, lo- I'm glad we brought that topic up. Growth mindset versus fixed mindset. There are so many people that don't have that mindset or even those words to use to describe their thought patterns. If you were one of those dads that never heard that before, I hope those words helped open up a whole new world because when you, this is what we're talking about when I say that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you, and that everything that is coming into your life is an opportunity to grow from it. And if you keep that mindset there, your mind will grow and everything that comes to you will keep getting stronger. Trying to do too much in life, saying yes to too many things, man, 
if that advice doesn't hit you hard in 2020, so much of 2020 was about slowing down with COVID. And before that, we were always saying, yes, one more thing, one more thing, just adding it on, adding it on, adding on. We have to recognize as dads that we need to slow down. It takes a village recognizing that you can't just do it alone. Like there are so many people that it takes to raise a child and you have to rely on all those different support networks to be able to do it successfully. And telling yourself that you can do it alone is just a recipe for disaster. And even if you somehow do pull it off, you're not gonna get the results that you were aiming for because you need that experience, you need that person to share the load with. Comparing yourself to yesterday, that was something that I've heard before, but I often forget how valuable that advice is because so much of the comparison trap is is that. It's comparing yourself to someone's yesterday, to someone's future, someone's ending, to your beginning. And we only need to compare, are we better than we were yesterday? That is the, that 1% mindset that we really, truly need. Losing your identity. So much of what professional sports and veterans face is the identity crisis that we have to go to. How do, re, how do we redefine who we are. And remembering that when our first transition joined, that was when we joined the military. That is so important. It's something I talk about a lot when I go on other podcasts, because to me, you have to know who you are in the beginning to really understand who you are in the end, and then really figure out where you want to go going further. I really hope you love this episode. I really hope that you get a chance to check out freedadcourse.com. Those friendship courses there have already got some feedback that those dads that are listening to that course are loving what they're hearing and they're already applying it in simple ways and ways that may not be seem obvious with COVID, but there are still opportunities every day to spark up a conversation, to create new friends, because those friendships help change my life. And I hope that this course at freedadcourse.com changes yours. And so with that, I'm going to sign off and I will talk to you guys again on Friday.